Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Request for Explanation podcast. Today, we've got me, Manish. And us. And me, Aaron. And today, we're going to be discussing RFC 2126, Clarify and Streamline Paths and Visibility, a.k.a. the Modules RFC. Aaron and Josh, please introduce yourselves. Uh, Well, so I'm the author of said RFC, which was cleverly named to not mention the word modules uh, for reasons that we'll get into later. And yeah, if you don't if you don't meet, know me, I'm a member of the Rust core team and and manage the uh, the Rust team at Mozilla. And I'm Josh. Uh, I I work on Servo most of the time, um, and I'm coming in as a as an outside observer who knows very little except that he likes the the modules that exist in Rust today and is curious about what that means for this future RFC. Okay. Well, welcome. So, Aaron, what does this RFC propose, and what problem is it trying to solve? All right. So, for those of you who haven't following closely, or maybe you're living under a rock in the Rust world, um, this this uh, is the latest in a very long saga of RFCs about the, the module system. And I think we'll get into that history later, but for now, we can focus on the specific RFC. Um, so this RFC is part of the overall initiative this year to improve the learnability and ergonomics of Rust. And that initiative was driven from a lot of feedback that we saw in the 2016 and 2017 surveys, um, where Rust's learning curve continues to be the single most uh, important complaint that people have about Rust, and people trying to use Rust in production, bringing up teams uh, around Rust you know, struggle with training those teams and so on. Um, so why the module system specifically? Well, we weren't trying to be particularly innovative with the module system. It's not like a major selling point in Rust, per se. But it's a surprisingly large stumbling block for people. So it's in, in the process of putting together this RFC, we collected um, feedback from a number of sources uh, with people talking about uh, you know, how unintuitive they found the module system. Some people saying that they gave up learning Rust um, because they couldn't get past the module system. Uh, and just generally people feeling frustrated with this aspect of Rust, which is sort of not the interesting part of Rust, but it's standing in the way of getting to you know, the actual interesting stuff like fighting the borrow checker. Um, so, you know, we, we spent a long time trying to understand what exactly was confusing about the module system because a lot of people like it as is, um, and, and there's definitely a sort of uh, survivorship bias going on where um, the people who have stuck it out and have learned the module system have come to really love it and appreciate it. Um, you know, but it's still, it's important to understand why other people are having struggles. And I think our, like, hypotheses about that have evolved a lot over the course of this discussion. Um, but this RFC focuses on a specific set of problems that largely have to do with paths and importing. Um, so one thing that's a bit confusing about the module system today is uh, extern crate actually both brings in an external crate, but also sort of mounts 
the name of that crate at a certain point in the module hierarchy, basically, wherever you're using the extern crate. Um, and, you know, that, that makes sense once you've heard that explanation. But in practice, uh, most of the time, extern crates uh, is used at the top level module, uh, you know, in, in a Rust crate. And so people's mental model tends to be that, oh, external crates are namespaced at the top of my crate, along with my top level modules. That already is kind of confusing and weird um, and occasionally annoying if you want to have a top-level module with the same name as an external crate. Um, but it also starts causing some interesting problems uh, around learnability. Because if, if that's your mental model um, and then you're taught to write, uh, you know, external crate future, and then once you've done that, you can start referring to future colon colon whatever in that top-level piece of code, you start building this mental model that says, oh, okay, so once I have an extern crate, I can use its name sort of arbitrarily to start pulling out items from that crate. And from the perspective of that top-level file, that's true. But then as soon as your code starts growing a little bit and you want to start making your own submodules, and you start saying mentioning future colon colon in a submodule, all of a sudden you get an error that future isn't in scope. And so maybe you copy in the extra crate declaration or, you know, go ask for help and someone says, oh, well, you need to do use future first. And, you know, there are sort of a successive number of steps like this that make the module system feel complicated and mysterious. Um, and it's not that the rules themselves are, are actually all that complicated. Like, it's possible to explain the core rules of the module system in a very succinct way. It's just that the consequences of those rules and the way that it feels to actually use the module system in practice um, can be quite confusing until you've come to understand those deeper rules. And so the, the goal of this RFC is to find a way that uh, keeps the basic spirit and rules of the module system intact, but tweaks things so that they don't lead to these counterintuitive consequences as much of the time um, and sort of steers people in, in the right directions um, when they're first getting started. So actually this sort of reminds me of when I wrote about the module system was that the module system as we have it right now is not unintuitive. It actually makes sense, however, it is not, it does not have an intuitive path of discovery. Once you realize what it is, it makes sense, but for people discovering it, they end up assuming it's something else and just get, keep getting more and more confused until they fall down into a pit of confusion. Right. <laughs> and I think, like, throughout this process, you know, when we were trying to figure out what people found so confusing, you know, for a lot of us where we were, we were just taught the rules directly or like intuited them fairly quickly. Um, it was just hard to see why, why is this confusing? And it took us a while to really get into the head, you know, to fully understand the wrong mental model mm -hmm. that you are led to build if you sort of follow your nose and, and aren't taught the rules right off the bat. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I realize your explanation of what actually happens now made me realize that I have been totally misunderstanding how extern crate actually actually does its thing. 
um, <laughs> when it's not in a top-level module. This is actually quite fascinating to me. Yes, <laughs> and and it's funny too because I one thing I experienced in this process is while I rationally understand the actual rules, when I'm programming in anger, I refer to wrong mental models. Um, like and and I have caught myself in various threads saying things that are actually wrong about the module system, but are coming from you know my underlying more intuitive model of what's going on. And that to me like is suggestive, you know, that there's we could achieve some better alignment between these two things. In particular, I like the phrasing of the word mount because that like evokes a certain analogy from how Unix mounts work, or in general, how mounting is used as a term in programming, and that really fits what actually happens. And I don't know, I just like that term. Yeah, and I think that it also points to the fact that it's a kind of unusual thing to do for external dependencies, right? Most, most languages um, don't let you mount them in arbitrary places in your hierarchy. They're sort of over there to the side, and there's a consistent way to refer to them. Um, and that, in fact, is sort of the key proposal in this RFC. Um, so ba basically, you know, in, in a lot of languages, when you are importing items from your own package or from an external package, you do so in a really uniform way that basically starts with package name followed by path to item. Um, and essentially, this, this RFC proposes that exact same model for Rust, um, where sort of fully qualified paths, which is to say paths that you write after use statements or after a leading colon colon, um, always start with a crate name, where the keyword crate is used as the name of your own crate. Um, and so this means basically talking about external crates uh, looks the same way it does today. So you say, you know, use std colon colon rc colon colon rc. Um, but if you want to use something from your own crate, now you'll say use crate colon colon, and then you're in sort of the top level of your crate. Um, so this loses some expressiveness in a sense um, in that, like, you, you no longer directly mount an external crate in an arbitrary place within your own, but you can always use pub use if you really wanted to re-export it somewhere. Um, and at the same time, now you're no longer dumping your own stuff and external crates into a common namespace. Everything is uh, sort of fully uh, split up at the top. So yeah, so one, one piece of this is the crate keyword being something you can use at the start of the path. Um, another component, which is sort of the other side of the same coin, um, is removing the need to write extra and create at all. Uh, and so ba basically the idea is, you know, if you imagine a world where paths always have this shape, then it's completely unambiguous what crate you're talking about in a use declaration. And so there's no need to, you know, forward specify um, what the extern crate is uh, because, like, that information is already obvious from the use declarations. And you know, there are a bunch of fine details here because there's there's stuff like macro use um, that you can use with extern crate today. And so we have, you know, the RFC has uh, some stuff to accommodate some of those more, um, you know, 
the corner cases uh, for using extra crates. But for the for the most straightforward cases, um, it's there's really just nothing to do. Like we just deprecate extra crate and, and we're done with it. Um, I guess the one piece I should mention. So a lot of the sort of controversy surrounding the module system work has been proposals that involve breakage and epochs and so on. And this final proposal uh, does not involve any breakage, nor does it require a new epoch. Um, it, in fact, operates entirely through deprecation. Um, and the way this works is basically fully qualified paths first see if the leading item, the leading name, excuse me, refers to an item at the top level of your crate, if there's a bound name. If so, you get a deprecation warning that says you should write crate colon colon in front of that. And otherwise, it looks at the available external crates to see if the name matches one of those. And so the, this provides like a, you know, a breakage-free transition. Um, but it doesn't give us all the benefits we might like because uh, this means you can't actually have an external crate and a top-level item with the same name under this model. We would, we would actually need a new epoch to get there. Um, but the point is, we can take our time. There's no rush. We can, we can get the vast majority of benefits in terms of learnability and so on um, without going all the way to that point. So to summarize my understanding from what you've said, is that the, the main problem being addressed is that the, the mental model surrounding the interaction of like extra and crate and where that lived, um, as well as its relationship to modules um, in, in that top level module um, and, and sub-modules, that the, the, the model of how all those things interacted was unclear to many people, especially when starting out. Am I correct? Yeah. Okay, and so the solution is uh, or the, the the RFC then proposes a solution based on um, eliminating extern crate um, and making it so that that becomes implicit through the use of use statements and the paths that they contain. Yeah. And then use statements by the same turn become sort of more explicit about what crate they're bringing things in from. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so are there any downsides that have been uh, that have come up as a result of, of this um, this proposal? Um, yes, and I should mention so there's there's another part of the proposal we haven't talked about yet that has to do with visibility. That's a little bit less important, um, but we can cover that sort of separately. Um, and ac sorry, but actually before we do downsides, I realized I should mention one last thing about what we've talked about so far, which is to go back to that first example and sort of make clear exactly why this helps, right? So, so with that first example, the, the problem was that you were told to write extern create to bring in an external dependency, but now suddenly that name is in scope at the top level, but it's not in scope in submodules, right? The way that's addressed here is, well, you never wrote extern create in the first place. The way you know, the way to add a dependency is you add it to Kurgo Tomal, and then you just start importing items from it, and your mental model is every time you import an item, you say what crate. And so to get future into scope at the top level, you would have to say use future. Um, 
And then if you move that code into a submodule, it would continue to work um, because you know the treatment is sort of completely uniform. Um, and by the same token, another place that people continually get tripped up is uh, the fact that use statements are always taking these fully qualified paths, but then other item declarations uh, are using paths based on what's in scope, um, which people often gloss as relative paths. That's not really what's going on, but it's, it's a subset of what's going on. Um, so you're often tempted, you know, you have a reference to something inside of one item and maybe you want to lift that out into a use and you're tempted to, to just say, you know, use uh, whatever that, that item name was without a leading self colon colon. Um, and then you get an error that says, I don't know what item you're talking about because uh, you're actually referring to a top level module, right? So anyway, I think this helps with that as well because it'll be much more obvious that uh, when you go up to your use statements, everything is preceded by some crate name. So it doesn't make sense. You wouldn't expect to be able to use one of these relative paths um, up there in your use statements. You would have a, a very clear reminder, oh, I should put crate colon colon. Oh, maybe I should do self colon colon actually here, right? Um, that's the hope. Okay, so yeah, so let's talk about downsides. Um, so for this part of the proposal, uh, there, there's a very obvious downside, which is that although this doesn't break any code, everything continues to work, it does generate an enormous number of warnings across the ecosystem, right? So we turn this on and you're likely to get like multiple hundreds of warnings across your crate. Um, and so that, you know, and then fixing that involves churn, right? So like we're updating crates across the ecosystem. So that, none of that is free. Um, so the RFC proposes to mitigate that cost by providing a Rust fix tool uh, to do this migration automatically for the most part. Of course, it's hard to make that tool perfect because of conditional compilation, build scripts, code generation, and so on. Uh, so there are always going to be little pockets where you'll still get a deprecation, but your code will still definitely work, right? You might just have some deprecation warnings to deal with as you find the time. Um, but, but, you know, with this RustFix tool, our expectation is that the vast, vast majority of people will never have to do, take any manual steps um, to make this transition. Uh, but you also have zero problems, you know, linking with old code because everything just works as, as it is. Um, okay, so that, that was one downside. Another uh, pretty obvious downside is this makes paths to items in your own crate more verbose because you now have to say create column column in front. Um, that, is, that is definitely true. Uh, we've talked about alternatives like, oh, well, maybe we should make this unambiguous by requiring external colon colon in front of external crate names or whatever. Um, but it's actually, it's a little unclear it, whether external imports or internal imports are more common. It depends on the crate. It takes very quite a bit. Um, and I think one advantage of this particular approach is the very simple explanation that a path always starts with a crate name. Uh, and so I think a lot of people found that a really satisfying 
mental model to get across um, that, that really clicks very easily. Um, there's also a mitigation for this cost um, in the form of another RFC, which is almost certain to pass, that allows nested uh, use statements, basically. So within, basically within a use, if you mention a submodule, you can also say colon colon and then uh, take another list of uh, use imports. So, so this means, in general, you would see use create colon colon open, and then you'd have some big like nested list of all the things you want to bring out of the crate. So the extra verbosity of writing that one create colon colon is is not that significant um, in that world. And that actually reminds me of you know another interesting thing in idiomatic Rust code today. It's very common to separate out the use declarations that are coming from your own crate and the ones that are coming from external crates. Um, and I think this, this, like, this is saying something, right? We, we're already feeling the need to try to clarify this to our readers. And in a way, this RFC is trying to codify that distinction more explicitly. Um, yeah, so I think those are, those are the main drawbacks. Uh, they both have, I think, pretty good mitigations. There are a few other drawbacks that people have brought up on this part of the RFC um, that are connected more to those corner cases around extra crates. So I, I think we can kind of gloss over them um, for this discussion, but the details are on the thread. So you mentioned that um, there's also something to do with visibility. Uh, could you go into depth on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, Okay, there's actually been a fair amount of misunderstanding about the design of our visibility system as it is today. So let me start by briefly recapping that, um, and then I'll explain how, how we're improving it. Um, so today you have a kind of range of visibility modifiers you can use. Right? By default, items are private, which means they're visible to the defining module and any of its descendants. Um, and on the other extreme, you have pub, which means you know, that the item is potentially visible all the way outside of the crate, can be exported. Um, and then we have the recent addition of uh, what's sometimes called pub restricted, basically pub followed by, in parentheses, some path where pub crate means the item is visible only to the crate. Pub super means it's visible to only the super module, the, the parent module and all of its children, um, et cetera. And I think one, one thing that's important to understand about the mechanics here is um, what these restricted forms of visibility are actually buying you. So uh, visibility in general, um, you know, buys you essentially two things. Um, one is decoupling, right? So if you have private details, then you know that you can change those details without breaking your clients, right? That's very important. Um, and another is invariance about your code. So if something is private to a module, then you know that the only code you need to look at to ensure that an invariant is upheld is the code in that module. No, no other code could possibly be touching this directly. Um, so both of those are really important. 
the uh, the pub restricted stuff is most. I mean, it sort of attaches to both. Um, I would say, at least, I think of it mostly in terms of invariance. Um, but basically, it's it's limiting the amount of code you need to look at again to to see what could possibly be touching this detail, right? So, in other words, you might have a struct with a, a field inside of it that can't be private because you know you have some sibling module that really needs to be able to operate on it, but you really don't want to expose that field to the whole crate because it it would be very dangerous. Maybe there's some unsafe code involved um, or some key invariant that's easy to get wrong. You want to be like really sure about the values in this field. And so you can use pub super uh, to state and enforce that restriction. And what that means is if you try to re-export that item um, or access it through, through uh, you know, a direct path, either way, um, if you try to re-export it outside of the super module's scope, you would get a compiler error. Um, so we call this a sort of upper bound on the visibility of an item. Um, right, okay, so that's, that's the, the system as it is today. Um, and, you know, this is a relatively recent feature. The feeling, though, is that it's not seeing a ton of uptake in part because it feels a little bit heavy weight, right? So writing hub parentheses crate, it's just kind of a lot, especially if you're going to be, if you would have to do it all over uh, a module. Um, and instead, what people tend to do in idiomatic Rust is sort of use or maybe abuse visibility at the module level to achieve a similar goal. So what you'll do is you'll have a module that has pub items. So in principle, and maybe pub fields, like stuff that could in principle be exported all the way out of the crate. But the, the, the module that contains these items is private. And so these are actually um, much more, you know, these items actually have much more constrained visibility than their visibility annotation suggests. Uh, and, you know, it's great that we can express that, but it's not great for code readability um, or sort of understanding the module system because when you're looking at a given item and trying to think, okay, where are the, how do I, what code do I need to look at to understand the invariance here? And it says pub, you're getting no help, right? And so what you have to do then is module by module look outward for um, either re-exports or sufficient privacy to cut off the possibility of re-exports. Um, all right, so the other part of this RFC is introducing a little bit of shorthand um, to encourage the use of pub restricted as well as a lint. So I, I refer to this as sort of carrot and stick, right? So the carrot is uh, you can, instead of writing pub parentheses crate, crate is now a visibility modifier as well. Um, and this goes hand in hand with the use of crate as a way of getting to the top level of your crate, right? There's a sort of uniform mental model of what's going on. So you can say crate struct or crate fun or whatever. Um, and it means exactly the same as pub crate does today. And then there's a lint that checks if you have an item marked pub, that it is in fact 
re-exported, you know, or sorry, that there is a public path from the entry point of the crate to that item. Um, so you're you're encouraged to make things less visible when you can. Um, and in principle, that lint could work at all levels of visibility, not just sort of crate versus world. Um, and maybe over time, we'll end up introducing some sugar for hub super visibility or whatever. Um, but I think just knowing whether something is visible within the crate or is, you know, anything goes, it's visible to the whole world, that alone is already a very useful piece of information to have when you're looking at an item. Um, yeah, so that that's the other core piece of this artist. Okay, so why why has everyone been getting so excited about this RFC and the the sort of the past fruitful multiplication of all the different possible ways of changing the module system? So I'm curious about the choice of word excited. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm guessing that you mean this in a kind of broad sense. Um, uh, so I think, like I said, this has been a long, long saga. And you know, in the interest of keeping the podcast short, there's no way that I can really get into the details of prior proposals. Um, but I think a lot of the controversy um, in, in the prior rounds of proposals uh, has come out of their somewhat more radical nature, right? So I think where we landed with this RFC is, you know, arguably conservative. It is still a fair amount of churn, um, but it's, it's very straightforward churn. And I think it's easy to, to say that, like, you are changing your code to make things strictly more clear for everybody. Um, you know, and I think people feel pretty good about that. Previous iterations, in, you know, had more drastic changes, like uh, effectively changing pub to mean what today is pub crate, uh, because we think that's a more appropriate default, or changing the way that you define submodules so that mod statements are no longer needed, and instead you're reading it directly off the file system, um, uh, and so on and so forth. And I think, like, some of, so I think those ideas still have merit. And in fact, we plan to file an experimental RFC um, for playing around with simplifications around mod statements in particular. Um, it seems like there's enough of a win there that it's worth exploring more. Uh, but in terms of building consensus and getting something shipped, like paring it down to this conservative core um, turned out to be really helpful. And you know, I think. Uh, it's been it's been an interesting experiment in truly open design work. Um, this is this has been an area where the Lang team has really made a deliberate effort to put out its thoughts early and often and get feedback. And I think that's had some good effects and some bad effects. Um, you know, I think. On the, on the good effect side, when I look at our understanding of the problem, let alone the solution, at the beginning, eight months ago, and where we are today, I think it's clear that we've learned a lot and we've arrived at a much better solution than, than where we started. Um, so I think it's, 
this discussion has been a huge success, and a lot of that has been, um, you know, just the way that in these debates you're forced to get really introspective and really dig deep into why you think what you think and where the problems really are, um, and that that really sharpened our understanding. Um, on the other hand, I think there have been a couple ways in which the process has, has broken down a bit. I think one of the more important ones is it's, it generated such a high volume of discussion in such a short period that a lot of people burned out uh, on, on being involved and you were left with a sort of small core of, of people with sort of unlimited endurance <laughs> for these kinds of RFC discussions. Um, and, you know, it, that sort of meant that over time the, the feeling of the discussion sort of shifted and we weren't seeing as diverse a set of perspectives. We didn't feel like, you know, we were hearing from the full group of people and just generally people got tired, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, like, another way that that showed up is um, at, at some point, the, as, as we went transitioned from internals threads to actual RFCs, and by the way, this RFC is the third <laughs> attempt. The first two were closed. Um, it, in that transition, there was kind of a sense of a snowball effect in the comment threads, where uh, there were just there were some immediate knee-jerk reactions, and then more and more people piling on. And it didn't have this feeling of really exploratory, dispassionate, careful dissection of the issues. Um, it had, it felt much more like sort of rhetoric, gut feeling, knee-jerk reaction kind of thing. And I don't, I don't mean that to disparage the commenters or anything. This is like again, everybody was getting tired. These changes, you know, were looking fairly radical. Uh, it's not surprising that this happened, um, but. You know, I, I'm interested in finding ways to have these kinds of discussions in the open, but uh, keep them in a sort of collaborative, exploratory vein um, where we don't feel like there are two sides to this battle and people are piling on to either side and, you know, we don't want the other side to win. Like, try, try to get away from that kind of mentality that I feel like it got into a little bit. Um, but I think in the end, uh, at least judging from the comments on the final RFC, there's, there's a feeling that um, we did reach a really consensus design that people on all sides of the debate feel good about, comfortable about, agree is a step forward. Some people want to go further in the future. <laughs> Some people don't. And you know, we'll, we'll pick it back up then after we've had a chance to rest. But, uh, I also realized <laughs> there was one more thing in this RFC which I forgot to mention. Um, it's just it's a small uh, it's a small thing, but that at least some people are pretty excited about, um, which is that in terms of laying out modules on the file system um, as an alternative to using mod RS inside of a subdirectory, you can have uh, the module sort of live in in the directory of its parent module. So like if you have a foo module, so right now in Rust, right, if you say mod foo semicolon, the def definition of foo can live in two places. 
either foo-rs or mod-rs in a foo subdirectory, which contains submodules of foo. Um, and some people find this confusing. Some people find it annoying uh, in their editors to have like 26 mod-rs files open. Um, some editors aren't, aren't great at navigating that. Uh, and so the, this RFC proposes that it's permitted to have foo-rs and then a foo subdirectory that contains the submodules of foo, but not a mod-rs file. And the nice thing about this approach, or one of the nice things is there's a very, very simple mapping from Rust paths to file system paths, namely add.rs to the end. Um, whereas today, that's, that's not the case. It's, it's a less direct sort of uh, mapping. So that's, that's a small thing. Um, it's actually surprisingly contentious. Like there, there has been some amount of pushback uh, around you know, things like people wanting to see a module and its contents sort of in the same place and um, or feeling like, oh, well, Python works in a very similar way to us today. So given that people know Python, doesn't this provide an easier learning curve for them? Um, but the modules, the, the modules RC does not um, sort of come down hard on one side or the other. It offers you the choice, and it's not deprecating ModRS or anything like that. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see, you know, where we end up in terms of what the book says to use and so on and so forth. It's interesting you mentioned Python because um, in my experience, most Python learners have like almost the exact same problems where it's just you either cargo cult putting a, a blank init.py in random places until it works or you like swap around import foo from bar or import bar or whatever and then figure out which one works and nobody I don't really know that many I've never really seen people understand it how the Python module system works either um, so it, it's a good analogy because like it, it gives us an insight as to what our new users are probably experiencing right you know and I don't think like that change or the visibility change alone is going to be a game changer in terms of learning Rust. Um, these are more removing paper cuts. I do think that the path verifications are more significant. Um, you know, but part of the mentality here is, you know, Rust. One of Rust's biggest liabilities right now is its learning curve. Reducing the learning curve is very tricky. Um, and so we should take every opportunity we can in the language to, you know, find ways to simplify without, of course, sacrificing important value that we're getting out of the systems we have today. And I think this, this RFC has pretty unequivocally gotten to that point. I think actually I just opened the previous RFCs to have a look. It's really interesting to see how the emoji votes have um, progressed. Like, I mean, there were two blog posts before this which were not RFCs and we can't see the votes there, but there was a lot of discussion on those. But the first RFC, which is 2108, has 43 thumbs up and 15 thumbs down and six confused um, and a few other emoji. And the second one, 2121, has 15 thumbs up, 20 thumbs down, 11 confused, and other emoji. 
And this one has 77 thumbs up and one thumbs down. <laughs> and two confused. So, like, I mean, the, by the emoji metric, you're winning. <laughs> and this is an important metric, um, although I, I certainly have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, I think it, it's, been, it's been interesting, especially because um, you know, the second RFC was open pretty quickly after the first one and was an attempt to capture where the thread seemed to be heading. Like, it looked like we had achieved consensus toward a revised design. You know, so we put a bunch of work into um, rewriting the RFC. And by the way, when I say we here, I should totally be crediting without votes and Kramer TJ, um, both of whom have been super important in this whole saga, um, have written previous iterations of these RFCs. Um, but anyway, we were heading toward this consensus design. We closed the first one, opened the second one, and then everybody hated it. <laughs> and you know, that, that was pretty frustrating. Um, I think in hindsight, like it turns out the consensus design had a bunch of problems, um, but I think there's also just this general point about fatigue. So to be honest, I understand the thumbs up on the current RFC partly as, thank God this is coming to an end. <laughs> so what is left to decide? Um, and is there, is there anything that's preventing it from being implemented as soon as it ends up, if it ends up going to final, um, final comment and, and is proposed to merge, then is there anything that's, that's blocking it at this point? So I, I don't think there's really anything significant left to decide right now. Um, there is a little bit of debate on the thread still running about the privacy aspect. Um, and I, so far, I've struggled to understand the concerns being raised. Um, so I, don't, I can't really speak to that yet. Um, that could result in some changes. Um, but otherwise, I, I think it's pretty much good to go. Um, and the implementation here is actually really straightforward. Um, so I, I would expect, you know, we can, once this is merged, we can um, move pretty quickly on actually trying it out. And is, is RustFix a precondition, or like is the existence of RustFix be a precondition to this actually being um, implemented in nightly or only stabilized? Um, it's not a precondition. Well, okay, so, so to break it down a little bit, right, this RFC adds some things and adds some warnings or deprecations, right? So we can add create colon colon um, as a, a qualifier for paths right away. We can add create as a visibility right away. And that doesn't force any churn on people just adding those things. And we, we will want those things to be stable before we introduce any warnings related to them, right? So that you have something stable to move to. Um, so the way, the way I would see this going is, you know, we land those features, we play with them in nightly, we stabilize them, um, and then the deprecation part slash the, the lint for um, uh, unnecessary pub, uh, we only turn those on once we have a RustFix tool to automate migration. Um, so basically what we want to avoid is 
dumping hundreds of warnings on people and then asking them to fix them by hand. Um, so, but we can, people can start writing code in the new style much earlier than we have that tool available. For what it's worth, uh, there already is a tool called RustFix that takes the suggestions, the compiler or linters output and applies them directly to your code. And it could be used here or the Rust team could come up with a new one. But this tool exists and it mostly works. So. That, yeah, is that, is that Killer Cups? Killer Cups tool. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that that would actually work perfectly for this case. Um, uh, that basically, in that, in that case, we could just implement the deprecations directly and then leverage those with this tool to do the fix. Um, it's like, it's a straightforward enough local fix that that seems quite plausible. Have you contemplating um, having the Rust compiler silently rewrite the paths that are now deprecated to the new modern stable versions? I have not contemplated that. <laughs> um, I My gut feeling is that people would be pretty uncomfortable with the compiler rewriting code for them, um, uh, at least not without some explicit opt-in. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, like, this, the kind of Rust fix tool that's based on compiler suggestions, like, integrating that into the compiler proper with a flag seems totally fine. Yeah, it sounds like people would get capital M mad if um, the compiler started editing their code. Yeah. <laughs> So what kind of feedback are you looking for now? Um, well, I mean, yeah, at this point, uh, just any niggling concerns about what's being proposed. I mean, I, I feel like we've been talking about this stuff for long enough that it's pretty unlikely that we've, you know, missed anything glaring, but, um, Definitely, like, if you're using extern crate in some unusual way um, or, I don't know, like, visibility in some interesting way, um, you know, it would be worth thinking through whether the RFC fully addresses the, the details of your use case. Okay. And how can people help if they're interested in doing so? Um, well, so, I mean, more... More comments on the RFC thread um, are are helpful. You know, if there's if there's more to add that sort of comes from your experience that differs from what's been said, um, or help trying to get to the bottom of the you know last couple of debates that are going on right now um, would be appreciated. Uh, and then, assuming that this does get merged, I think this RFC is a great candidate for a first-time compiler contribution. Um, because it's a it's a relatively like surface level kind of change, you know, introducing a new keyword and um, mapping paths to it. Like it's you don't have to really get deep into the guts of the compiler to make this happen. Um, so I think we've talked about the upcoming impl period um, on this podcast before, but uh, basically in just over two weeks, uh, the Rust community as a whole is going to be switching gears away from RFCs and onto implementation and documentation work across the community. Um, and we're going to put a lot of work into uh, making it easy to get involved. So um, 
you know, if you want to help on this effort, that will certainly be part of the, the impl period, and we can direct you toward you know, mentored bugs to get started. So this has been a rather long process, um, and it has sort of it has shown various parts of how the RFC process works in in extremes. Um, given the experience here, what do you think of the RFC process could be improved or needs to be improved? Yeah, um, well, so I will say, I mean, this has been sort of stretching the RFC process to its limits. Like, it's hard to think of, if you, if you sum together all of the comments from all of the threads, I'm sure it tops anything we've ever done before. Um, you know, and so, of course, we don't want to over-rotate on this kind of extreme case, um, but it, it does feel like pretty clear that there's room for improvement. Um, I don't really know yet what that looks like, but, you know, to, so I already talked about the way that at some point the thread, you know, kind of felt like people were grouping into these different camps and battling it out, um, and, and that's not how we prefer to have RFC discussions. Um, uh, and I think one of the things that led to that situation here was the fact that we didn't really agree about the goals or constraints. Um, and that, that makes it especially difficult to have a fruitful debate, right? Um, and so, you know, one thing that's uh, worked well elsewhere, so like, you know, I've been talking with Yehuda Katz um, about some of his experiences in the Ember community, which uses a very similar RFC process. And in fact, they also had a major RFC about their module system um, with many of the same characteristics. And one of the things uh, they did that worked out really well was over the course of the debate, they explicitly articulated and reported constraints that were emerging. And that, that was like a sort of ratcheting foundation for the discussion um, so that you weren't constantly relitigating those things. Because uh, that was another frustrating part of this debate. Like every time a new thread was open with a new idea or whatever, you would have to go back and revisit absolutely everything from the previous discussion. Um, even if you had spelled it out sort of in the thread. There's just such a huge volume of stuff to read. Um, and so trying to find some way to like, I don't know, reach milestones in the discussion and sort of say, okay, we, we have consensus on these constraints. Everything else has got to build on that. Um, that would be helpful. In this particular case, I'm not really sure how to do that because some of the disagreements are so fundamental, right? Like, I want to get rid of the very thing that you find most valuable about the module system, right? Like, that's a hard point to start from. Um, another thing uh, was that I felt, you know, while we were pushing hard to do this design in the open, and I very much want to continue in that vein, I think that's very valuable, um, there's always a question of, well, just how open, in the sense that, like, it sometimes felt like a total free-for-all, you know, which is great. Like, allowing anybody to comment on anything at any time sometimes serendipitously produces great results, like, because you'll get a perspective you never would have seen otherwise. But, you know, again, the volume of commentary can actually make it 
less inclusive than it seems, right? I mean, that's that's one of the lessons that that we've learned here is um, uh, you can be too successful at lowering barriers, and that success can in fact end up raising barriers. Where you know somebody who doesn't have time to read through 200 comments is just like, well, I can't participate in this. Um, and so one thing we might consider doing for contentious topics like this is assembling um, some kind of more focused strike team that is not just comprised of like Rust sub-team members, but has you know other people from other stakeholders basically that represent different points of view. So you have, you know, everybody feels like their their values are being represented by somebody in this group. And then that group is tasked to hash out a design. And that process can proceed in the open, um, but it would be more like publishing notes of you know, how those discussions were going rather than soliciting completely open-ended feedback at every point along the way. Um, and then the idea is like if you have enough stakeholder representation, then people in general don't, don't feel like they need to be adding their voice because they're already being heard sort of by proxy. Um, so that was, that was also something Yehuda mentioned from the Ember community with their modules RFC they ended up doing. Um, so who knows, you know, maybe, maybe something along those lines or maybe something else um, will help. But uh, I think there are a lot of things we would like to improve about the RFC process. And one of the nice things about the impl period is, you know, we get to take a break, switch gears and do something else. And then toward the end of the year, when it comes to a close, I think there's a good opportunity to revisit a lot of this stuff and, and make improvements. All right. Any final thoughts, anyone? I feel like I have a solid overview of the, of the changes and a better understanding of the current system. This is, seems like <laughs> a win-win to me. <laughs> awesome. Well, I guess so I was just going to say from, from my part, uh, you know, just uh, a hearty thank you to everybody who's who's been involved at any point in this process. Um, it's it's been a long haul, but I feel like you know one of the things in relationships is sometimes working through conflict successfully brings you closer together. And I feel like as a community, you know, um, this has been like a, a hard topic to navigate, um, but we've come out in a place that everybody feels pretty good about, um, and that makes me feel better than ever about the Rust community. I, I, I was pretty pleased to see that there are like a lot of strong opinions throw, being thrown about throughout this whole process, but overall everything stayed on track and technical and nice, which is really nice to see because normally when this happens, discussions go south. And in this case, there were a lot of discussions and thank you, Aaron, for dealing with them, but they were all like good discussions with strong opinions, which was nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think like the kinds of the ways in which discussion broke down were not of the form, you know, personal attacks and name calling or any of that kind of thing. Um, you know, I do think I do think that like there is an aspect of empathy. I mean, I've learned a, I've been thinking a lot about empathy throughout this process that, you know, we talked before about trying to really get in the head of people learning Rust and the incorrect mental model they're forming, right? And, you know, similarly, people that were concerned about some of the more radical changes were talking about their particular workflows. And those workflows 
often seem very alien um, to, to me or others on the Lang team, um, but it's important that we sort of keep an open mind and, and hear each other's um, concerns. And so that, you know, that would be the one thing I'm most interested in proving, um, you know, in terms of community discussions is just a greater willingness to say, well, this is what I personally care about, but I acknowledge that, you know, I'm just one data point, um, and then somehow teasing out a set of constraints. But I don't know. That's really hard. <laughs> anyway, thank you for coming on our podcast, uh, Aaron and Josh. For those listening, if you would like to suggest a new episode uh, topic for uh, upcoming podcasts, you can do so at is.gd slash RFE podcast, all lowercase, no spaces. Again, thank you. Bye. Thanks, Nish. Thanks, everyone.